0: Welcome to Mining Now. I'm your host Jared Downey, and joining me is Gaudi Molina. Hello, Gaudi. Good morning. Good morning. It's it feels like we've been it's been a little while since we've shot a Mining Now.
1: You know what? Um, yeah, I think it has been a little while.
0: Because we had just a barrage during the summer. It was just like one after the other. Yeah. Yeah, and then we had it a just, little.
1: It feels like I haven't been in the office for a really long time.
0: Well, we had a couple of reschedules, and it happens.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just, it's also been other, like you said, other shows and that kind of thing. So it's been a while since mining now, but.
0: But we got lots, we got lots coming up and we're going to kick things off with Paul Nielsen. He's the project development or head of project development at Waterton uh, Global Resources Management. But we're going to also have a bit of a special focus today. CIM is putting on their capital project symposium in March. So that is, uh, it's 27th to 29th. So they're going to, they're going to pack a lot of information into that those three days. Um, So we're just going to sort of tease out some of the things that they'll be covering and also get Paul's expertise on some of the topics. Um, Before we do that, Gaudi, we have to hand things over to sponsors. So take it away
1: okay so today we've got fuller brothers fuller brothers inc has over 59 years of tire industry experience as the world's leader in providing non-hazardous non-toxic products that reduce tire management costs for a diverse range of customers the acknowledged formula developers of the globally recognized tire life fuller brothers also produces other quality products such as psf plus PSF, lubezit tire cream, dripless tire paint, Omega Tire Repair System, as well as select tire service tools and tire painting equipment. For more information, you can visit fullerbros.com or you can also call toll-free 1-800-547-7785. Fuller Brothers, we have the inside covered. We also have Holly Frontier Lubricants and Specialties, which includes the PetroCanada Lubricants brand. PetroCanada Lubricants products and services are proven to maximize equipment performance, productivity, and overall savings. From heavy duty engine oils to hydraulic fluids, automatic transmission fluids and gear oils and greases, PetroCanada Lubricants is committed to delivering innovative solutions that deliver value and keep businesses moving. They have dedicated technical expertise, knowledge and know-how to help customers in the mining industry operate smoothly with improved equipment reliability and performance. You can learn more at lubricants.petro-canada.com or contact them at 1-866-335 Next up, we also have Savanai Equipment. Savanai Equipment supplies new and used mining equipment around the world from plaster to underground to ore processing plants. They have gold concentrating tables, trommels, and mineral jigs in stock now to take advantage of the high gold prices. You can visit them at SavanaiEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day. And of course, we've got CIM. CIM is partnering with the Mining Industry Human Resources Council and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada to present the Mining Needs You virtual career fair on November 8th and 9th. This two-day event runs from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, That's 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific Time both days. Registration is now open and free for job seekers and only $300 for exhibitors looking to hire. This National Career Fair is an opportunity for students and job seekers to apply for exciting work placement and job job opportunities. It's also a chance for employers, recruiters, academia, and other sector representatives to network. You can find out more at miningneedsyoucareerfair.vfairs.com and help spread the word across social media by using hashtag miningneedsyou. And last but not least, we've got PowerZone. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas pipelines, dewatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit PowerZone.com. In addition to the inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems, no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com
0: hello paul welcome to the show
2: yeah thanks for having me jared uh
0: yeah it's great to have you uh we're going to cover a lot of top um, topics the you know this project development topic um or or, sorry capital project um is (laughs) i mean i think it's an understatement to say it's an important thing so i'm glad you're here to talk us through it you know i've touched on it on you know certain certain different shows but i obviously don't have the expertise to unpack it so glad you're here um, before we get into it, can we just give uh, just maybe a little bit of your background and Waterton and just, just um, some context to the audience?
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so my name is Paul Nielsen. I'm a metallurgist by training, and I'm the head of project development at Waterton. Uh, Waterton's a private equity uh, platform that invests uh, in mining. We've got uh, $1.75 billion under management, and the portfolio is largely constructed to be open pit heap leach gold projects in Nevada, because they're low risk and Nevada's a great zip code. Um, But beyond that, we've got you know, a, a care and maintenance copper concentrator uh, in Arizona that we're bringing back online um, and a, a greenfield nickel sulfide depart, uh, project in Quebec. So basically, you know, our, our model is um, when the sector's out of favor, we're buying uh, and then we take these assets private, we give them the care they never had um, by the previous owners to really step through them diligently. Um, and then eventually they'll go back on the market at some point um, to get our investors the best return. Uh, so, so I've been in the business for about 20 years, um, started my career in operations in northern British Columbia at the uh, gold and base metal mines. Uh, and then I got into consulting um, for the excitement really. Uh, and I've worked on concept studies through commissioning and construction on, on a bunch of projects all over the world. Um, and so I joined Waterton in 2017 to, to head the project development function and make sure that all our assets are, are advancing and, and adding value.
0: So you have a bit of experience in what we're going to be talking about,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just a tiny bit. bit. I uh, in in my role in consulting as well, I had I had business leadership pieces, uh, which, which actually adds a lot of insight to to some of the common misalignments that owners and EPCM companies have. So so we can talk about some of these things as we go. Yeah, for sure.
0: I just got to ask a very a very flat out question that I mean that's it's actually making quite a bit of news, and uh, but. Historically, it's been quite a challenge to get these projects off the ground is, do you think that's going to change because
2: of the, the just the, the sheer demand that we have coming down the pipe? So, yeah, like look, look, mining projects are really, really hard, uh, and that isn't to say that projects aren't hard in other industries, but you know, when you layer on all the levels of complexity in in mining projects, the tech is really stacked against you. You know, each deposit is unique in terms of its geology, metallurgy, geotechnical, hydrological characteristics, you know, so you need to do a lot of really complex multidisciplinary work to actually understand how the project is going to behave and get enough confidence to bring it into production. Um, You know, the trend across the globe is is deposits get lower and lower grade uh, simply because, the good ones are mined. And that means you need to make high volumes. Uh, And so there's been a huge trend to to large projects. And with size comes complexity, you know, just in and of the fact that these projects are large, they are complex. Uh, You know, if you you think about it, you know, you're, say, say trying to do one garden bed in your backyard, you can wing it. Um, Some things are not gonna go according to plan and you can adjust on the fly. But if you think about trying to install garden beds, uh, you know, to cover several football fields, you got to have a really good plan and you got to execute that plan to the T. And if something hits you unexpectedly, it's going to be really hard to recover. So, so that, that's kind of what you see in the complexity of scale. The other thing about mining, of course, is you don't get to choose where the mine is. The deposit is where it is. Uh, And, and, you know, that might be, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in in the Southwest U S but you know, there are mining projects all over the world. And with those things come, you know, A lot of challenges, um, particularly when it comes to ESG and uh, and being a good neighbor. Um, And then you add to that the the volatility in the commodity prices. You know, if you look at at the last boom, copper went from two bucks to four bucks, then back to Mm two bucks. Pretty hard to make money. in in that kind of environment and let's you know not lose track of that that's what mining projects are about they're about making money um so from the start it's a really tough slog and and what happens is when times are good there's all these projects happening and when times are bad Uh, not many projects happening because it's very hard to 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 act counter cyclically but that means that the staff in the industry fluctuates. So when when everything's going you're doing all these projects they're big they're complex and then the people you have it's really hard to hold on to a really experienced team so so all this just adds to a very challenging execution environment. Um, you look at the trends in the world to, you know, you look at, uh, at battery metals in particular, that's, you know, where everybody's focus is these days. And if you look at copper, nickel, things like that, to meet even the most conservative demand projections um, for the electrification of the supply chain, the number of mines that you're gonna have to bring online to meet that is jaw dropping. And it takes a decade to, to bring a mine on. Uh, so so th- th- there's gonna be a lot of demand because supply is relatively inelastic, whereas demand uh, moves pretty fast.
0: yeah, it's you know it, and it's I was actually reading through your notes going before the interview, and i it's something I know, but I just it sort of just struck me is that yeah when the, when the pricing is high, it still takes ten years. so you can't build a mine really based on a cycle. I mean, of course, Expert, the experts like yourself in the industry know that already. But it's, you're, you're, not, you're not waiting. You always always have to be moving forward in an industry like, let's say, in the auto industry in like a 2008 crash. The, the, the prices of a truck didn't fall in half. They just right. dialed back supply. Whereas the mine, you're still in the middle of building a gigantic mine <laughs> as you're watching the prices sink. And, of course, investors are sitting there going, oh they're not thinking four years i mean some of them are but a lot of them aren't
2: thinking oh well it's okay in four years it should come back well and the reality is once you're operating you've sunk the capital you you're you're now committed to operating and and when there's so much revenue volatility um it could and you know i use the example of Copper, copper is not even that volatile by metal standards. You know, if you look at molybdenum, in the last boom, six bucks, forty bucks, back to six bucks. Now it's trading around twenty, but there aren't too many primary molybdenum mines that haven't been on care and maintenance at some point in their life, simply because the commodity price is so volatile. So it's it's a super tough business that way, and most people don't appreciate how how those structural challenges influence what can be produced yeah
0: what with this uh this symposium that uh that cim is putting on it's i you know it's one of these um you know i don't get to everyone this is one of them that i'm going to be at for for every minute of to to and, and my team is going to be there too taking notes um what are some of the things that are going to be being unpacked
2: yeah so so look uh transparently because of all those factors i talked about and and lots of other stuff um you know the mining industry's track record in delivering projects particularly in the last boom cycle was pretty shoddy you know maybe maybe one in five projects was delivered on time and budget and and the rest were were over and long you know um but but this conference isn't meant to be a, a as an industry you know we're not very good at this this is meant to be a collaborative conversation amongst everybody who makes projects a success and and it's it's again it's another piece of complexity it's not just owners it's not just uh, service providers and it's not just financiers it's it's the the conversation between all three of those groups and and those people all speak different languages. You know the way the way a financier thinks about technical risk is different from the way um, that that uh, you know, for example, an EPCM consultant thinks about technical risk, and then an owner's team is going to look at it differently as well. So um, it's meant to be a collaborative conversation um, so that we can share best practice, look at what's worked, looked at what hasn't, what delivery models we've seen in the past, where delivery models are trending, how you align, all that all that kind of stuff. So so this this is the second. Um, you know, edition of of the Capital Project Symposium, and and the first one was all virtual last year. This one's meant to be in person, uh, March twenty seventh to 29th, ninth, uh, twenty twenty two, here in Toronto, um, and and like I said, it, it's really about getting everybody to together to discuss the different lessons learned um, and, and talk about what new ideas we can come up with to make sure projects get delivered safely and successfully. Um,
0: you know, there's
2: regional differences in in how projects are are conceived and and implemented across the world you know there's a we're here in toronto and it's the you know canadian institute of mining metallurgy and petroleum but all the same you know the, there's centers of expertise in south africa in the uk in australia that you know have a significant influence on how projects get executed worldwide and and those people need to be part of the conversation um so uh you know it's going to be a hybrid event in person, so we can get those conversations between sessions and across meals and uh, you know at the pub in the evening if that's what folks are going to do. But at the same time, we want to be able for people to participate remotely because the reality is the you know with the world we're living in sort of uh, coming hopefully towards the tail end of this pandemic things are different and we need to be flexible
0: oh so there is going to be a virtual component as well
2: there will be yeah we're looking at a hybrid model um, so so that some presenters can um can contribute without having to hop on a plane um because the reality is some places you know in australia you're free to leave but you've got to be gone for 90 days if you want to come back so uh if you know the, the, there's a lot of great expertise coming out of australia and a lot of really good different ways to think about executing projects and that is a pretty big barrier for those folks to come participate
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that you're doing that because it's uh, yeah it's we we, there's there's this uncertainty and, but I think uh, not I think i've been taught I talk to so many people sort of every day within the industry, and I mean people want to get back out, but they also don't want to. they don't want to over plan. They don't want to overcommit now to something yeah. because it's just, there is this uncertainty. So it's nice to have that hybrid, you know, people that are out in the East coast, but if you're out in the West and you're just unsure, or, you know, can I send my whole, you know, do I want to send three or four people or maybe I'll just book one, you know, all those options. It's really nice to have it. Um, can you sort of break down the sessions? Um, you know, I'd, obviously we're going to leave it a lot of it for the actual event. Um, but I think it is good for people to know sort of how it's going to be divided up over those three days
2: sure yeah so, so so there's four four main streams that we're dealing with the first is about taking your project from the studies through the construction decision and, and how in, in that you, you advance. Um, There's, there's a lot to unpack there and I'll I'll sort of tackle these one by one uh, as we go here. The next session is on financing, both for project development and construction. Um, This is a place, uh, you know, honestly, me personally, before I came to work in private equity, I didn't understand the money side of the business that, that well, I was a a pure private or pure projects person. Um, And, and, Projects, people, and 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 money, people don't speak the same language, and they don't think about things the same way. And there's a bridge to 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 cross there. Um, the the next session, uh, the third one's on project execution case studies, which is fairly self evident. People sharing best practice, what worked well, what didn't, what they've learned, all this kind of stuff from from major mining projects worldwide. Uh, and the last piece is on contracting models uh, and and really getting to win win and alignment between parties, um, which is which is. A long overdue discussion in our business and, and i'll talk a bit more about that one as we go here
0: yeah okay let's go back to the first one the project development um can, can you start to unpack that um i saw this uh i'm going to skip down to a third design philosophy uh i saw a note <laughs> sorry to take this away from you but kia versus bentley which is funny uh, i like that
2: um, <laughs> and look that isn't to denigrate kia they make great cars um and, and oh, it,
0: it seems like you love them <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, look, I'm a in project design philosophy. I'm definitely a Kia person. Um, (laughs) But look, look, the reality is, there are lots of different approaches you can take to designing a project based on the life of the project and the commodities like we talked about earlier Um, if you're a base metal company base metal projects tend to have longer longer lives they're they're, they tend to be lower grade long life big volume precious metal assets tend generally to be shorter life assets Um, so that really changes what you do from a design perspective you know if, if you're if you're um a copper producer, you probably think about a project in terms of mine life divided by the project's payback period. And the reason you think about it, and you want that number to be as big as possible, because that tells you you're going to have cycles that are up and down. But when, when things are good, you're making money hand over fist. And when things are bad, you're scraping by. The bigger that number, the more number of times you're going to make money hand over fist over the life of the asset. If you're a precious metal producer and you've got a ten-year asset, uh, say the first year, year and a bit is getting the thing into steady state. Then after that, you've got you know eight and a half years to make good money. So what that means in terms of how you design your project as you're taking it through the study. You know, The best example is if you look at how BHP designs projects in Rio Tinto, they design those things to be super maintainable and super operable, which is what every project should be if money isn't an object. They're dealing with really long life assets where you can pay for that. And then on the other hand, you look at like true bootstrap operations where, yeah, it would be nice to have all those things, but you can't afford it. So what do you do? You squeeze the snot out of the design and make it so it will deliver the business model and nothing more, no bells, no whistles. You call it zero-based design. You start with no standby pumps, no spares for anything. And then you look at it from a risk standpoint. Where can I spend money to de-risk as opposed to starting with the big thing and working your way back? Um, and and look, that that pervades itself through the whole, um, the whole project design process, you, you can, you know, uh, again, to, to the, the way to think of projects is this, there's, there's, you know, if you think of a theoretical project that has, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what it is about a quarter of the capital cost will be the tagged process equipment, about a quarter of the capital cost will be the bulk commodities like concrete, steel, right. uh, piping, electrical cable uh then about a quarter of the project will be um construction labor and about a quarter of the project will be all the indirect costs associated with executing the project you know housing transport freight logistics all this kind of stuff but then if you look at what those things are the quarter of your project that's tags tagged equipment that's your cash flow right um that is what provides your business and if you look at where Um, You know that tagged equipment and the bulk commodities are real things in the real world, the labor and the indirects are really just servicing the bulk commodities and the process gear right. Um, So what ends up happening is if you allocate the time um, and those costs to where they truly go so the indirects and the construction labor to the bulks and and to the installation of the bulks and the installation of the process equipment uh, and the mining equipment, you end up with the process gear uh, your flow sheet, your pay is about a third of the costs mm. and, uh, you know, installation thereof. And the the bulk, bulk commodities are about two-thirds of your cost and installation there, thereof. So uh, the way to think about it is that that third, that's your business, you don't squeeze there. But then the two-thirds, that's just a money pit. And your whole job through engineering and design is to mitigate the size of that money pit. You know, when I was, um, I don't know, I don't know how old I was, maybe 20
0: 22 or something i i was come when i was sort of first i mean i'd been around it in the in the sense of you know a little wire brush on some old gear you know that kind of stuff but um i when i came into the the sort of industry and was actually starting to network and get to know people there was a lot of talk um and someone listening to this might might correct me on this but there was a lot of talk about new versus used equipment like now investors didn't they didn't want to see you putting used equipment on on their sites and things like that which is my background you know my, my family comes out of the used equipment world so I remember that being you know that was an alarming thing for me to hear at 22 because I was thinking oh no but is that still the case where you have or or is that was that even a real thing I mean now it seems to me like from what you're saying if you're looking at a project you want it to match up you want whatever they're investing in to match up with the with what they're trying to get processed. Not so much, well, just categorically, we're gonna have the most updated equipment on in the globe on a project that might
2: be around for five or six years. Is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yeah, look, it, it, it all depends on the specific circumstances of the owner, what they can afford, what the project needs, what the project can afford, the market capitalization of the company, because that affects how much you can spend, right? Um, you know the, the thing about new equipment is that say you're buying a, a, a new pump, um, you know that for the first year, two years of that pump's life, it's going to run as new before you kick the crap out of it in operation, right? It's it's going to be new and it's predictable. Whereas used gear, you don't know exactly how or when it's going to need maintenance and how it's going to fail. So that, that's the challenge with used gear is that it's less predictable. Um, and in the end for a mining project, uptime is the thing. Um, right. So, so so, the uptime is less predictable, but again, there have been plenty of projects in all over the world that have been very successful using used equipment. Um, so so again, it, it, you wouldn't expect someone like, uh, you know, Megacap company like BHP or Rio Tinto to pick right. up used equipment and right, install exactly. it. Um, but again, it comes down to the context of, of the company specifically. You know, the, there are plenty of case studies where, um, you know, companies haven't, haven't been able to make the decisions they wanted to make for lack of money but nonetheless they've been successful in the projects uh in the context that they've had so uh, it it, it all ties into the same sort of questions around not just what's the design philosophy but the design philosophy comes from how are you going to get the money to 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 build the mine and that's a function of your market capitalization and your partnerships and and all this kind of thing um and, and when it comes to you know, taking a project through, from the studies through uh, construction decision, it really matters who you are. I mean, if you're a single asset company, your job really is to get that project built and, and put forward reasonable investment expectations. So, you, so a potential investor can say, okay, I'm going to put in this money, I'm going to get that return. Mm-hmm. In a mature major mining company, um, it's not the same question because they have a number of projects that are competing for capital within the same organization. So then it becomes a risk equivalence question. Mm. And how, how do you put those projects on the same basis? And, you know, looking at different commodities, different technologies, different locations, it's exceptionally complex to balance those things out. So they're equivalent risk and all those things have knock on effects on how you design, how you implement your project. So again, these are super complex topics that, uh, We'll, we'll provoke some pretty good discussions there.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, like I said, I can't make every single mm-hmm. one, but this uh, this capital project symposium is one that I'm going to be at with with a notepad. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, I think session two. You've probably sort of you know touched on them a little bit, but the development and project financing. And I want to talk specifically about. Um, I always like when you can sort of put two things beside each other to sort of get perspective. Um, and there's sort of that the 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 Aussie mentality and the North American mentality. And I want you to unpack again. I'm sure it'll be unpacked more at the symposium, but I'd like to touch on a little bit on the show. because I think it's an interesting perspective.
2: Sure. Um, so, so look, the, the, there are a lot of small gold mines in the Western Australia gold fields that North American companies never would have built, just wouldn't have done it. And the Aussies did. And they were super successful building a whole bunch of projects which w- are Arguably, should never have been built, but they were, and they were successful. So the question is how, and 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 th- there's a real difference in how the capital markets treat projects in in Australia compared to how they treat them in in North America. In Australia, um, companies are broadly valued based on cash flow. Um, North America, they're broadly valued based on um, net asset value or NPV. So th- the you know. North American companies are always talking about PNAV multiples, so price meaning market cap to the net asset value, um, whereas in Australia it, it really is about free cash flow price to free, free cash flow, and and that changes how you think about a project because the Aussie mentality is basically what can I what can I pay for what can I spend what can I do. Mm. And then turn that into some cash flow and then reinvest that cash flow into a bigger thing and then reinvest that cash flow into a bigger thing and eventually you get to to the big project um right. whereas the the north american developer approach is more okay this is what the project this is the best value version of the project from an uh. MPV standpoint but then it takes a really big bite to get there um so so and 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 I, I don't have any strong biases as to which model is the right one because, again, it's really project and context specific. But but there are very different philosophies there, and again, it, it changes how you look at things. Um, you know, uh, I, I I think that manifests itself in development projects pretty pretty significantly. Um, Aussie companies have the the, the larger Aussie. Um, Delivery houses have been more comfortable taking project execution risk um, over the last, you know, sort of 20 years than than North American companies have. So they'll do fixed price lump sum turnkey delivery of projects, whereas um, the the North American houses have been have been a bit uh, less game for that approach. Uh, and again, it has huge implications on on the cost of a project for an owner. You know, if it just pick a, a hypothetical um, 100 million dollar capital project don't know what it is, it doesn't matter. Um, But if you're going with an APCM project execution model, your cost of capital, again, I'll just pick a nice easy number is 10%. Whether it's that actually that or not, it's not that important. But so $100 million project, your lender is going to insist that you have an overrun facility of probably 30%. So now you're at $130 million at a 10% cast cost of capital. Whereas for an EPC project, which is fixed price, where the delivery risk is transferred to the the contractor, your execution contractor, their incentive is that if they find a way to do it cheaper, that's money in their pocket. You're paying the same value regardless of whether it's over or under. So they're incentivized to do it cheap. Um, But then the lender looks at that and goes, right. That's 100 million, and the number is 100 million. I don't need you to do the overrun facility, and because that risk is transferred, um, the cost of capital is half as much. So, so from an owner's perspective, you know, 130 million dollars at 10% versus 100 million dollars at 5%. Those are really different projects, um, and it all comes from the philosophy of of how you're going to execute. Um, but both of those things, you know, with if you, if you're doing an EPC fixed price contract, if your contractor is incentivized to do things. Uh, cheaply, then you have often an operability issue that comes with that. So you right. have to find yeah. a way to, to appropriately balance that. Um, but but it, it you know, the, these execution models, these aren't trivial things. And um, they, they span many different disciplines. And, and that's why we need to be talking about the, these things, because it, it, it really trickles down and how you get the money, who you get the money from to execute your project. These are all really relevant topics. Do you think it's
0: going because of the increase in demand? Though, do you think some of that that Australian um, approach is going to trickle over into um, into the U.S. and into Canada and and down into the Americas?
2: Yeah, and it's you know, in fairness, it's not just an Aussie approach. You've seen it with um, pretty successfully in in companies in in Africa, based out of South Africa, as well. And some of those companies are traded on Canadian public markets. You know, um, a, a really good example of this would would be. Um, uh, the, the uh, Atlantic Gold Moose River consolidated project, uh, which was uh, eventually acquired by Santa Barbara. And th- look, that project was built on, on a shoestring and it delivered its business model. Um, and you, you look at it and you go, wow, that thing is lean and that's fine. That That's what it took to get that project built. And that is 100% the right model. So, so yeah, I think, look, the the reality is I don't think generalist money has yet understood the enormity of the challenge that it's going to take to electrify the world, um, and the enormity of the challenge in in that material supply. Yeah, uh, th- there was an interview with um, one of the founders of Tesla recently. Uh, he was talking about the um, how the other you know auto manufacturers weren't really understanding the implications. They're saying, "Yeah, buy some nickel, make some batteries," and. and his question was, "Yeah, but they haven't thought through the supply chain yet, and and so people are starting to have those conversations and think about the supply chain. Where are you going to get your nickel? Um, it's a great question. Where are you going to get your copper? You know, the copper demand over the next ten years is going to be astronomical, um, and and where it's going to come from when it takes ten years to get a new mine into production from you know ten years from discovery to production is an efficient efficient timeline. There there are mines that happen faster than that, but most don't." Um, so it, it, it's a pretty, pretty significant challenge, and I think you'll see, you will see um, enough variation in in the challenges of projects and the context of the individual companies executing those projects that you'll see a huge variety of delivery models. You'll see, you'll see North American companies take Aussie delivery models. You'll see, you know, um, more collaboration because the world, you know, despite the pandemic. Um, sort of making the globe less accessible, it's also shrunk us uh, in terms of of how we have these conversations and and how we share best practice, I suppose. Um, What was I going to ask, do you
0: think, oh, I was going to, I don't expect you to have this data just on hand, but these uh, projects that are funded based on cash flow, do they have a history of being able to scale up later though, to reach full potential? Or or is do you also I, I would assume part of the reason that it doesn't get implemented um, in, in some places, because then there's that risk that it just ends up staying that size of project and it really you don't you don't actually fully um, realize the asset potential. Yeah,
2: and, and that can be, um, you know, usually the once you know the funny thing about about capital projects is is that the initial capital spend is usually the hugest hurdle to get over. Um, you know, uh, you know, if I look at our own portfolio, we have some brownfield assets that we re- we've restarted. And if they were new mines being built, we probably wouldn't have done it. But because right. the site was captured, because there was a footprint there, the incremental capital was pretty reasonable. The roads and think,
0: were built and, and the, the exactly, yeah.
2: Yeah, all, all the facilities are there, the, the the you know, it's got power, it's got water, all this kind of yeah. thing um and, and those are significant costs especially if your mine is particularly remote so so once you've once the capital to build your mine is sunk um you know the calculation is different because then honestly that money is behind you 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 however you finance the mine to get it built you have to make good on those commitments obviously but from there the calculation if you just do a forward looking um piece with debt service or you know if you sold equity or a precious metal stream or, or what have you those obligations carry but then you're doing a forward-looking calculation and the capital's behind you and what that almost always says is do more yeah can.
0: no that's a, that's a really interesting point yeah um and it, i think of it i mean not even in the in the production world you know you start off with with a little camera and getting stuff out the door get people moving and then you can you can make much better cases um for for scaling up because you have a little bit of data you have something that actually exists i guess that's why i've had people on the show and i, I gotta get some more on actually talking about these uh these mobile plants um that yeah. have been used i mean that they're a great opportunity to get a project underway um but then scale up at a later date i'm
2: sure in australia i think they're huge in australia yeah uh like uh, So, so our, our projects are, you know, I work on a lot of heap leach projects and heap leach projects are really, from a processing standpoint, it, you're basically making a big pile of rocks and irrigating it with solution and then you've got a really small um, processing plant to, to extract the pay metal from that solution. That they're not complex, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, they're successful because they're cheap to build and they're cheap to operate. That's really, you know, the story of, of, of heap leaching, particularly in the Southwest U.S., uh, copper in Arizona and gold in Nevada, um, but, but, you know, those projects um, are successful because they are what they are, and and the operators and the builders of them understand the risk profiles of, of those particular types of assets, and, you know, th- there's a huge difference between, you know, a 2 million ton a year Um, small crushing heap leach project and uh you know 20 30 million ton a year copper concentrator right people look at those and go mining project mining project no that i mean they're 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 miles apart um and 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 oftentimes people don't appreciate the challenges which that come from those differences
0: and and i'm i'm assuming that is actually that just right there is that something that's going to be covered at the symposium just understanding the distinction between these projects
2: yeah de- definitely um a, a number of the speakers will be touching on that um in in you know th- that'll be a pervasive issue uh, across all four sessions. you know if you're thinking about you have to know the risk profile of your project from a yep. design perspective, it trickles down into how you finance it. Um that'll be touched on for sure in the case studies. and then the other thing is the contract models, how you align interests and 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 execute from there. it's uh, yeah, it's a critical part of it
0: um uh, going back to that, I know we're not going to go into the the project execution. um if there's, Are you going to have, are are some of the speakers going to be um, from these successful projects and actually be walking people through, how detailed is it going to get from a technical standpoint uh, of getting these projects um, actually in operation?
2: Yeah, so so look this 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 is the only conference uh, globally that that is solely focused on project execution and capital project delivery there are often sort of side conversations or some presentations or a stream at other at other events, but this one's really focused on it. Um,
0: Which is great, by the way, it is it's honestly it is great that they're because I I. I've been the person in the industry that didn't understand what was going on and it's very overwhelming. When you just, okay, this is what this is about. I'm just going to learn this and actually go forward with it. Um, you know, we've got some new team members coming in. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to oh, say, I think it's it's fantastic that CIM is doing this type of thing because it's it's just so important. People need it. New people coming in the industry need very specific type of information, not just, they, they also need the big events, but they need this specific stuff. So they walk out of there going, okay, now I get this part. So anyway, sorry to sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's
2: important to note. All, all I was going to add to the point is just that, in, in you know, the third session is all case studies. So it will be project Great. specific presentations by by the people involved um, t- to talk about what went well, what didn't go well, why didn't it go well, what have they implemented as learnings on their other projects in the future, you know, re- really pull back the hood and, and share some of those things. Um, you know, I guess the other thing, you know, talking about the complexity of project delivery, the number of different things that can kick you in the face on an execution project, one couldn't make a list. it, it would, it, you know, you, you just have volumes and volumes of all the things that can go wrong because, again, with the complexity of the size, the unique nature of every deposit, and on and on yeah. and on, all those things. Um, but but it is nonetheless very informative and enlightening because you can see, okay, so these folks had this challenge. I see an analogy to my project. How are we going to manage that risk, or how are we going to capture that opportunity within our specific context? And this this is always the challenge. It's tempting to paint with broad brushes. But each project is unique and needs to be thought about as a unique thing. Um, and 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 usually, when people get away from that, that's where challenges creep in.
0: I I don't think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna butcher this question, but I'm gonna try to ask it. These these projects that are trying to get off the ground, all these check boxes that they that they need to hit. Um and and we the fourth session is contracting models, a hugely important topic, obviously. It, how disruptive, again, not, not a great way of asking this question, but how disruptive is not following through with some, just some of these, because like you said, there's so many things that can go wrong. The projects that are good, the the good projects that there's, there's good profit, there's good, um, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a good plan in place. Do they still find a way to go ahead, even if they do miss something? Are they able to correct it? Are are investors forgiving, or do these little disruptions can they topple an entire project, even if it's a good one?
2: Well, I, I mean, they, they can and they do. Um, you know awesome example is Pritium's Bruce Sack project that underperformed market expectations. But if you look at what that mine is today, they're printing money. they you know they they, they They, they deliver. And again, I don't have any inside information. I just, you know, as as someone who's uh, always really excited about what's going on in this industry, you look at Bruce Jack. Yeah, they said they were going to be 400 odd thousand ounces originally in the feasibility study and they're delivering 300 odd thousand ounces a year they're delivering 300,000 odd ounces a year right, in right. <laughs> you know in the bottom half of the cost curve that's a smoke and gold project um but because the expectations were set higher those you know they were in the penalty box for quite some time and you know the, the they've they've dutifully worked through those challenges um and, and done a, what what I think is a pretty good job of dealing with all that but uh, again because the expectations were set where they were um it's a challenge for them but in a vacuum it's a great project still and 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 you know uh a great project is a great project even if it is challenged The, the 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 trick is that over time as all the great deposits are mined out you're getting to more and more challenging projects deeper underground riskier jurisdictions more complex processing methods narrower margins all all these things make it harder and harder to be successful in projects so it's it's not just it's not just that the industry has a you know has to clear a bar for a constant set of of complexity and difficulty it's that the bar keeps getting raised and we have to raise our game too right
0: yeah it's um i I guess uh probably this contracting models um i mean the the, the location is the I don't know, I don't know if you'd agree that it's the biggest challenge, it's definitely the thing that I hear about the most, because we've got the technology, we've got the processes, um, we we've, we we've know how to collect data now. But at the end of the day, if a community says we don't want this.
2: Yeah, look, uh, it, social license to operate um, is the thing for a mind. you know, mines when they go poorly are an eternal monument to failure, when yeah. they go well, they are transformative. Um, but but there's a lot of really tough complexity that that comes with that, you know, as a mining company, you don't want to be in the business of doing government and providing basic services for communities at the same time you want to be a really good member of the community and you want to be supportive to the host community that has you there. So, so the, there are a number of exceptionally challenges challenging lines to walk, um, But but in the end it just comes down to you have to have social license to operate and and. That really means being a good neighbor. It means being a good partner to the communities that you're involved in, in whatever shape that takes and whatever is important to that community. Uh, And there are lots of places where it's exceptionally difficult because between sort of local government, regional government, national government, those don't speak with the same voice necessarily, and they're not necessarily aligned, but you have to have everybody on board. So it's the really, really complex issues. and and to the contracting models piece you know the mining projects are, are complicated because of everybody that participates you know the owners the service providers the financiers and, and and the communities and and getting the interests of those folks aligned is really really hard um and takes uh i mean a, a gargantuan amount of effort you know if if you look at what happened um you know my previous parts of my career i, I was you know, worked in APCM for uh, for 14 years, and, and you know, in various roles, I was part of contract negotiations, and you know, uh, ultimately coming to to deals on how we were going to execute these projects. And and there was a broad trend uh, over the last boom, sort of 2005 to 2015, of just straight risk risk transfer. The owners would be like, okay, this risk goes on to to the contractor. Fine, but what often that did as a consequence is it caused behaviors that were the opposite of alignment so what was good for the um the the service provider was bad for the owner and good for the owner bad for the service provider and that's kind of poisoning the well from the start of a project you know companies don't do projects people do projects um and it's it's the experience and the expertise and 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 the trust in the project team that gets these things done successfully so um you know where there are different interests um and those interests aren't aligned in the end the contract is going to win you know (laughs) If, if you want to work in a certain way but the contract says you just have to exchange letters well, then, in the end, you're going to end up exchanging letters because it's a business. Um, so, so you know, the, again, great example would be, um, you know, if you look at, a, again, a pie chart for a project's capital cost. For simple numbers, let's say engineering procurement and construction management is about 10% of the total pie. Um, most EPCM companies, if you look at their financial records, um, they have a net margin of around 10%. You know, it, if, if their margins are diluted by a bunch of volume, it might be lower, but typically 10%. So what, what's the first thing? Owners often beat the snot out of engineering contractors to get better unit rates. Um, so say you get a 10% savings on 10% of the project. That's a 1% size, you know, 1% of your project capital cost has been saved. You know, if you were to align interests on it, you say, okay, EPCM consultant, here's the size of the pie, shrink the pie. And they're going to find more than 1%. Um, obviously, you have to you have to do it in a way um, where the interests are aligned, and again, where it's it doesn't become inoperable, and it doesn't create problems. But in aligning interest, you know, if you're an owner, you're set to spend hundred million dollars on a capital project and someone finds a way to do it for 80. Well, all of a sudden you have $20 million you otherwise weren't going to have.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: if it's a hundred million dollar project, again, using those 10% numbers, 10% of that's EPCM. So that's 10% right. or you know, 10 million. And their margin on that is 10%. So they're making a million bucks. Right. Yeah. If they find a way to deliver it for 80 million, toss them five, as a bonus their margin just got multiplied by five that is a huge business for them for them and you have 15 million dollars that you otherwise wouldn't have had right so so it's finding those alignments um, between what matters you know the the best way to execute a project is for what's good for everybody's business to be aligned um and and the the contracting models getting to win-win is about exploring those conversations and 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 pursuing those avenues such that A good project success um, is a profitable project and a successful project by whatever success criteria are defined by all the different participants so that everybody comes away getting what they need out of it. And that, like I said, that takes a ton of time, a ton of effort, because it's easy to say this is just the standard contract instead of having the decision makers sit down and say, right, what's a win for you? This is the win for us. How do we make that happen? It takes work, but it, it, I think, it's pretty critical to being successful in project delivery.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit of a Japanese business philosophy, that 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 sort of approach of of making sure every level across the board and down is, is everybody has uh, is getting an advantage out of it. Um, yeah. I was actually wanting to uh, just get your opinion on something because this is a this is sort of a, a thing that I I think. I, for lack of a better word of fear that I have, um, and I think it's a legitimate one, but I, I'd like your perspective. I am concerned that if we do not start to get these mines online in the way that they're supposed to get done, safely, social license, um, and I'll also highlight social license uh, in particular with the, you know this leading technology and the support of governments, local and federal, and all these layers we need. That the demand, when it really hits, and I mean really hits, and it will, I mean, I, it's not even people that are just pro-mining that say that there's a demand. We're, we're pretty much all on the same page on that. Maybe be one thing that we could all agree on in this world, that there is going to be a demand, that it will then get pushed through, and then that social license component will then start to be challenged, or um, the importance of it will be minimized. Do you think that's a legitimate concern?
2: uh you, you know it's an interesting question I, I think the biggest challenge there is that so so look the, the the cause if if the demand is happening and the supply is is slow to respond what that means will be high prices and that's what you're seeing across the world like if you look at the past year you know we had that horrendous spike in lumber prices um just based on supply chain disruptions but again supply demand imbalance right um and and you look at the last six months in fossil fuels with all the esg investment and and, you know long term 100 let's get away from burning dinosaur bits uh it's it's horrible for the environment the reality is most of the world's power still comes from burning fossil fuels. Um, so when there's underinvestment in those things, you have a supply-demand imbalance, and the price goes nuts. And the truth is, that price going nuts hurts regular people. Yeah,
0: that's where it land from.
2: 100%, that's where it hurts. And when regular people, the population of anywhere, like you think about it, you know, just if all of a sudden your gas bill gets multiplied by five, at some point, you're going to say, I can't afford this. This is a problem. This is a societal problem that needs to be fixed. And the reality is people of the world, if they demand change, change will come. Um, so, so I would be very, very surprised if, if uh, you know, to your point of, of sort of um, resource extraction, extraction getting rammed through, um, first, you know, on investor port the investor perspective, there's more ESG mandates out there um, that restrict how and where people can invest. Yeah. So those folks are, are, you know, not going to support companies. Uh, and it's a huge capital base. Uh, they're not going to support companies that are ramming projects through. Right. And, and I think the public will in those places to oppose rammed through projects would be devastating. And you would end up with no social license. And without social license, you can't operate a mine. You just can't
0: right so really what it's but in in essence what you're saying is the 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 problem is that so that has been put in place which is a good thing but it's still if the demand increases it's going to land it it, it's you're going to go buy a car and it's there's going to be a whole new type of price tag on it essentially
2: well yeah i mean i mean look i i needle my parents because they talk about when ice cream was a nickel right when i was a kid ice cream was five bucks. It's not crazy to think that over the next 20 years, we'll see another multiple of the same amount. Um, And, uh, you know, the, if you look at the amount of debt in the world, not to get on an economic pulpit, but the only solution to it is inflation. It's the only solution. Um, Because otherwise, you know, which is to say, yeah, $88 trillion of debt worldwide, the only way to make that manageable is to make 88 trillion dollars not that much money and the only way to do that is through inflation
0: right yep no it's it no there's a lot of truth to that um no it's an interesting i mean of course that's that i sort of came out there was a surprise topic but uh i think it is an interesting topic to to discuss because i hope i hope at very least that there will be sort of a shift to saying okay if this mine is doing it right let's green light this like I hope that is somewhere where we get to like 10 years to get a project off the ground when five years ago, you knew that, that it could be going. I mean, that's, it's absurd.
2: Yeah. Part, part, part of the challenge. Look, I, I, I have great empathy for the regulators. Cause how do you know, how do you know what's real? Yeah. You're not, yeah. you're not technical. Um, and, and again, when mines fail or when mines contaminate, um, you know it's an eternal monument to failure, and yes, they're closure bonding and and giving the governments the ability to close mines if the the company becomes insolvent, sure, but that doesn't change the fact that you know there is risk on the part of the of, of civil society in having mines put in their backyard ah, yeah. um, and and that has to be done in a way that is is appropriate for everyone, like if I'm honest about that ten year project development thing. You know, much of that is the technical work just to get your handle on it. And for right. sure, permitting in, in some, some jurisdictions, permitting takes forever. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't begrudge those jurisdictions for, for being careful, um, especially, you know, again, to the complexity piece. If you're a regulator, how are you going to make sense of the detailed, subtle, nuanced technical work that comes into defining the risks of a project. I mean, it's a tough it's a tough gig for them, too. Um, It's it's a tough gig for everyone. So the the only way through that is collaboration. Um, So if civil society says we need these minds, let's work together and find ways to expedite this process. You know, I think that might be a natural outcome.
0: Yeah. and And I'm sure one of the things that are going to we've talked about this on the show, I've had some great guests on talking about you know when you when you do that social engagement and start getting that social licensing don't not waiting until it's you know you've done all this other work and now you're starting you show up um you know indigenous leaders talking to me about you know they show up with it already pre-made well this is what we're doing do you like it it's like well you, Maybe should have talked to us three years ago and given us a chance yeah. to sort of build it with you and I, i'm sure that's going to be discussed in 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 this uh in the symposium because it's it's i've talked to i mean i don't even know the number but it's been a lot of people who said that that's a major issue it's just that conversation started after so much stuff was already done so of course you don't feel if someone just shows up and says well this is what i'm doing you don't feel like you're a part of it you know no. you have a little bit of money and uh, we'll have a couple of discussions and hopefully we can greenlight it there. It's like, I'm not doing that. why would I do that?
2: So, so so within our organization, we have a you know an environmental and permitting team which um, knows the southwest. US cold and they understand how to work with the regulators and what the regulators are concerned about and you know my background is technical. The number of things, that i look at and go oh yeah that's a throwaway detail and they're like this is a showstopper meanwhile other things that, that i see as a monumental change um they look at it as like eh, whatever surrounding air it doesn't matter languages cares. the languages
0: that people speak
2: 100 percent. and we're coming from it and, and and look those are, this is two groups of people within the same company on, on, on effectively um uh, coming from the same place so if, you know if, if we're misaligned i can only imagine how it feels to 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 be the, the the communities you if if you're not doing your your engagement and working on your social license from the start um you're missing the boat because there can be things that are meaningful to your host communities or or to society on the whole that cost you almost nothing to implement and really matter to them. Why wouldn't you do it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, I'm, well, we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap this, this interview up, but um, are you, are you speaking uh, quite a bit at the, what, what is, what is sort of your role in the session? So,
2: so my, my role is, is I'm pulling together the, and sort of chairing the session on the uh, development and project financing. So, um, you know, I've got my thoughts about, about what topics we should be discussing and I'm, um, working with the rest of the organizing team um, to pull together the right speakers um, to make sure that that's a robust discussion. So, so basically, I, I'm part of the organizing committee um, for session two, um, and and we've got obviously a you know we have regular meetings and and pretty good discussions about about what topics should be on the table, who you know who, who should we be inviting to speak, what are the right perspectives to share to make sure that we're covering the breadth of discussion and 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 really facilitating good conversations because a good conference is in the end it's just a really good conversation
0: yeah and i'm yeah it's it's going to be great um and it's uh, march 27th to 29th um of 2022 of course um it's going to be at the marriott downtown uh correct yeah right um yeah we're going to have links everything so to anybody watching it'll be easy to find out and it can can people already start registering for it and everything like that
2: absolutely yep okay okay
0: Thank you very much, Paul. Um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to chat. Um, actually, actually, hopefully, I can get to the event in person, um, and things are more even more open. And yeah, it'll be great. Fingers crossed on that. Okay. Thank you very much for joining the show.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, Jared. Take care.
0: Okay. Well, um, I, I think all four of those sessions. Um, well, I see why they're doing a three-day. <laughs> yeah there's a lot in there
1: yeah you can't pack all that in one day <laughs>
0: oh boy um okay uh gaudy where can people like follow subscribe share we're going to put all the links for the cim um for the symposium up um but where can people call follow crownsman
1: um okay so definitely subscribe to our youtube channel uh follow us on facebook linkedin we're super active on there um <clears throat> excuse me you can also contact us uh info at crownsman.com uh, to suggest a guest um, or you if you'd like to be a guest uh, yeah definitely contact us because we are getting closer to um, the holidays and we're booking out fast. November is booked <laughs> yeah so November's actually start booking booked. now yeah start booking now for the new year <laughs> is well we got a couple we
0: got a couple so I think we got like four spots left in December <laughs> they'll be gone by to, they'll be gone by today though I know. <laughs> okay thank you very much gaudy thank you again to paul thank you to angela and christopher and the whole uh, cim team um we love doing this show uh, in collaboration with cim and sharing so much information about the mining industry and a huge shout out to you for watching thank you and see you on the next episode of mining now